1: JJ for that great introduction. I also want to thank all my listeners from around the world. It is the listeners that makes this show a success and I am thrilled when I hear your comments, your reviews and see how the different stories of the people who are so inspirational have affected your lives. Each and every story is inspirational. Each and every story has something for everyone and something that you can take away and say If she did it, if he did it, I can do it. Or there's a life secret there, a life lesson that I can draw from. And so I really thank not only my listeners, but of course my guests. And I encourage you, if you haven't listened to some of the older podcasts, please do. Because some stories are just phenomenal. Today with me, I have Marquita Harold. She is an inspirational author of 6 books her recent book and the book that we are going to discuss today is called resilient living build inner strength and master life's challenges with confidence and courage she is also a publisher and chief evangelist at emotional sorry emotionally resilient living she is also an award-winning life and small business coach. In the course of two short months, Marquita's 20-year marriage dissolved. Her dad died unexpectedly, and she was diagnosed with a rare degenerative eye disease from which there was no, no cure and would in all likelihood leave her completely blind. In reading through... Uh, some of the notes that Marquita gave me. I love the statement where she says, there really are only two choices when you are faced with overwhelming adversity on any level. Curl up and let life defeat you or choose to fight back and push your way through the problems. Mm -hmm. Thank you for joining me today and welcome Marquita. Marquita.
2: Thank you so much Carol. I'm really pleased to be here and have an opportunity to to
1: share with you and with your listeners my my experiences. Absolutely. And we we have a lot to talk about today. The first thing that I would like you to share with the audience is what happened to you to prepare you for those two months when your life, your world mm. came crashing down. What happened in your life previous to that to bring you to that place?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I was raised in a home um, <laughs> highly dysfunctional. I, I often joke about the fact that fear didn't just run in my family, it galloped. Uh, my Some of my family were affected by uh, alcoholism. Uh, The combination of it created a very difficult situation that spilled over into my life in school. And as children will do, that uh, spawned some pretty relentless bullying. Uh, So it it was a very, very difficult childhood and and youth. And when I moved away from home, I thought the best thing to do was uh, to tough it out and just um, try to put it all behind me and forget it unfortunately as we all tend to learn the hard way emotions don't just go away they they hide in dark places mm. and have have an unpleasant way of coming out in uh, in physical manifestations and later on I started experiencing things like uh, stomach aches and bad rashes and that sort of thing and fortunately I was able to find a doctor who um, diagnosed me with Uh, anger issues. (laughs) Really? Yeah, so uh, I had just tried to bury all of that stuff and it wasn't going to stay there. So he gave me some books to read and that was actually the first time I came across the term resilience. And I'd always been fascinated by why people do the things they do. I mean, if you think about it, it Two people can experience the same trauma, mm-hmm. and while one person is just – it floors them, and they're mired in negativity and hopelessness, the other person actually manages to push through and thrive uh, and come out better for the experience, and and that's what I wanted to learn how to do. Um, so after that, I became just this relentless researcher on the subject. I wanted to learn everything I possibly could about it. Uh, and uh, that's, that kind of leads me to the experience that you mentioned uh, later on in life where uh, everything kind of came crashing down. There's one of, the, one of the myths, one of the most common myths about resilience is when you have it, resilient people don't experience uh, hardships or they experience less hardships when, you, when they're resilient. And that's simply not the case. Um, highly resilient people have just as many problems as everybody else. the the issue is or the the benefit is that you recover faster and you and you learn from the experience excellent now can
1: I back up hold your thought there okay I want to back up to something that you said way back in the beginning when you talked about fear galloping through your home through your life right what were you afraid of and how can we address those fears and how did you cope with those fears well, actually, it wasn't me so much as
2: it was my family. Um, my many—it's many of the people in my family really have had issues with fear. My mother didn't leave the house for years, and it wasn't that she had um, any sort of uh, disability that prevented her from it. She, uh, the other issues, alcoholism, and things like that, had created these fear-based triggers where anything new, anything outside of her safe cocoon created such fear she couldn't deal with it. My father was fearful because in those days you just didn't admit when you had issues of Mm. alcoholism, you hid it. Um, There were, for instance, Other issues that related, like my neighbor across the way, uh, his son had uh, suffered from stuttering. Well, I was not allowed, we were never allowed to have children in our home, friends, because there was a chance that somebody might find out the family secrets. And they also thought that if you, and this is, again, an old thinking, but if you were around somebody that stuttered, you would
1: catch it. <laughs> like oh, a, my it. goodness. Yes.
2: So there, there were all of these things. And I think, you know, you have, again, it's choices. You have choices to follow the family tradition and just kind of go along with it. I, re- I chose to rebel against it. Everything I saw, I knew this is not what I want for me, and I kind of repelled all of that, and that's what sent me off in the other direction of trying to just put it out of
1: my mind. So your rebellion basically turned into a determination. Absolutely, you did not want to be what you were observing. Both in your, you had nothing to do with love. It had to do with what you were seeing as destroying your family because of fear or any of the other negative emotions.
2: Yes, absolutely. And and I think one of the one of the wonderful things that comes out of, you know, coming to a point in your life where you can consider yourself really strongly resilient is that you can understand how people are fallible. And for me, one of the biggest steps was learning to forgive and understand some of the things that in my youth made me angry. Um, You know, people do the best they can and sometimes the only way they know how uh, and you can never know what other burdens a person is carrying uh, yourself. So we just
1: have to try to forgive and be as compassionate as we can. Expound a little bit more on forgiving because this is a subject that is near and dear to my heart and that many, many people who I have interviewed have brought this up. And there are also always good views that different people who have experienced situations where they have to choose to forgive. So share a little bit about that in your own, in your yeah.
2: Well, it. In part of the work that I did to work through my anger issues, uh, one of the – fear, dealing with fear was one of the most – and forgiveness was one of the most important elements uh, because you can't carry all of those bad feelings around with you and not expect it to affect your own life. Mm. Um, you, It doesn't – when you forgive somebody, it doesn't mean that you condone their actions. Right. It doesn't mean that what they did was right in any way. All it means is that you admit, okay, they did this. They are fallible. Uh, maybe it really hurt me to my core, but I choose to rise above it and move on with my life um, stronger for the experience. And I think one of the most powerful examples of this is when you see – in some of the news stories how a a family a mother for example mm-hmm. can't forgive somebody who killed their child right uh, and because it's not about that person they obviously did a horrific thing it's about the woman wanting to not have her feelings and her memories of her child destroyed by all of this hatred. She wants to move forward and think of only the
1: loving things about her child. That's right. That's very good analogy. Absolutely. And unforgiveness just is so toxic. It is,
2: it is, and that's just, you know, I look back and I think for all of the the junk and all of the, you know, the problems, my parents really, I forgave them a long time ago for whatever there was (laughs) to forgive. They did the best they could, and
1: and I appreciate them for taking care of us the best way they knew how. As they said back in um, my era and your era and many others, they didn't come, you know, kids didn't come with manuals. Oh, absolutely. You know, and we didn't, the sort, the resources were not there like parents have today or the groups or anything else. They did the best they could from what they learned from their parents, which was very often a pretty negative influence, you know, coming, the, the European influence or whatever, for example, which was, you know, children are to be seen and not heard. <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's that's very tr- that's very true. And actually, that's a good that's a good example because my father's parents came from Europe, from the UK, mm-hmm. and my my mother's parents came from the South and were um, highly bigoted.
1: Okay, all right. So, that- <laughs> and
2: so there was not a lot of really positive reinforcement there yeah. for both of them. <laughs>
1: Oh, we've come a long way, haven't we? We, we, s-
2: we cer- yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, we have a long way to go, but we have come a long way from from
1: the old days. So, talk to us now about those two months that you went through of trauma, oh. what you were going through, what you drew from, how you handled it, etc.
2: Yeah, I um. Well, initially, there's shock. There's the, when you're hit with, you know, pre, uh, some pretty significant things all at one time. Uh, I think, like most people in a relationship, I had a feeling, a sense that we were heading in not a good direction, but you used to, to overlook it because you keep thinking you can work through it. Um, and so, when it, when that finally hit, which was the first thing, um, I wasn't. I, it didn't floor me necessarily. It was like, okay, I had a feeling, and now, you know, mm. it's just it's real. Um, ironically, uh, you know, I just I felt relief because that had been stewing in the back of okay. my mind for such a long time, and just to finally come out. And, and I'm the kind of person I don't want things hidden from me. Give me mm. the bad news. I need to deal <laughs> with it. You know. Um, so I, I just confronted that. That was actually of the three issues that was probably the easiest for me to deal with. Really? And I, well, it was it was easy in terms of emotion. It was very difficult in the practical sense because the primary reason for the disillusion was that my husband, um, ironically, suffered from substance abuse. Um, that's the thing about it, uh, adult children of alcoholics. Yes, yes. You you grow up determined not to ha- have the same experience, and inevitably you fall in line, and that's it's exactly amazing. what you have. Yes, you know. So, um, we were married a long time before it it surfaced, but his addiction was cocaine, and um, he siphoned off all of our savings. So I had um, I had no money on top of The police banging on my door looking for him and drug dealers looking for him and trying to figure out how to make a house payment on my salary. So I ended up working three jobs um, and still didn't have much left over Mm. to put food on the table. So, you know, that part of it, the the practical part of it was difficult. Did you have
1: children at the time, too? No, no. We chose not to have children. Okay, all right. It's that doesn't uh, diminish how difficult it was. I just was wondering if you know you had that concern as well.
2: No, and and to be honest, with you I I he at one point did want them, and I think I by that time I had a feeling that I didn't mm. want them be, because of the relationship.
1: You knew where it was headed.
2: I yeah. Um, but in the midst of that, it's uh, after we first separated. I had I was in travel at the time as far as my my career. And I took a trip. I had to take a trip to Europe on business. And when I got back from the trip three weeks later, there was a phone – two weeks later, there was a phone message telling me in a rather matter-of-fact way that my dad had died of a massive heart attack. And it was just – I mean I was stunned not only that he died but that that's the way I found out. No kidding.
1: Oh, my word.
2: So there was the issues of dealing with that and the family conflicts, of course. But And then the eye disease happened in a, the most bizarre way because I was doing my usual thing of trying to just stuff all of this and just <laughs> deal deal with it one day at a time. And I was exercising a lot more than usual trying to keep my calm. And all this, as I was doing some push-ups, all of a sudden I had this – really sharp pain in my head. And I I thought, wow, I don't know what that is. But I left and I went out on a – I was participating in a golf tournament with clients that day. And as the day progressed, my eyesight started getting blurry. And it got quite bad and then the headaches started – And then the next day I went in to see a doctor. They ran a massive number of tests. And then he just shared the news with me that um, he had diagnosed me with a degenerative eye disease Mm. that um, there wasn't any cure for. And he said it was really weird because it's almost unheard of in our area on the West Coast that it's something that comes from typically of the Louisiana Basin, which ironically is where my mother's family is from and we spent every summer. So it was just the most bizarre set of circumstances. Um, But like everything, I don't know, maybe it's just because I'm stubborn, but I just said, okay, well, I refuse to accept the no hope diagnosis. Um, And so I... Really harassed him about uh, looking for alternatives, even if they were experimental, and i I did the same thing. I started doing some research, and that kind of that situation, which is probably understandable, took precedent over everything else, mm, of course, of course. and uh, ironically, just two weeks later, he called me in and said, Well, there's no guarantees whatsoever, but I found a doctor who is doing experimental surgery. Uh, for this condition, and I, uh, you know, as a blessing, it turned out he was just over in Honolulu rather oh than someplace. Oh my goodness! <laughs> yeah, really. Um, so my angel was looking out after me. So I flew over there, and he was um, an interesting gentleman. <laughs> and but he, you know, he did all the examinations, and he agreed to take me on as a patient. But again, emphasized repeatedly, there is no guarantee. And uh, well, long story short, uh, I had the surgery, and it worked. It. Wow. Uh, in fact, I'm told that my case is written up in a journal somewhere because uh, it was at that point it was so early in the experimental <laughs> surgery that mm. even he was somewhat surprised at how well it worked. Um, and it, today, it's kind of funny when I go in to get an eye exam, like to get my prescription. Mm-hmm. Up I did on my glasses the I crack up when I see the look on the doctor's face when they do their exam because they see all that scar tissue in there and they go i how can you see it? oh my goodness really it's yeah I mean, but, wonderful it is it's it's really amazing and when you deal with the most serious f- problem first which is always my approach. Mm. Uh, I just push through it and look for every opportunity uh, and you know the other stuff kind of falls in place and my ex-husband and I actually I I helped him through rehab really? um, and he's since moved back to the mainland but we're friends you know we he ended up apologizing to me and which it was what it was but mm. um you know, and I forgave him because there was no point in not forgiving right, right. him. Uh, I just wanted to move forward. And my dad, well, you know, my dad's death happened, and I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry that I wasn't there for him, but I couldn't change
1: that, so I had right. to accept it. Right, that's a good point right there, actually, yes. Accepting mm-hmm. the things you cannot change, right? <laughs> Absolutely.
2: But, I mean, that's how I, I got through it. I mean, I want to I wanna say... I want to add one other thing because this is also my approach. When I when I was going through all of that, you do the things that everything that you possibly can do, but there isn't progress every day. You're going to have days when you feel like you're, you know, it's tough. What do mm-hmm. I do next? What can I do? And my way of dealing with that has always been to focus outward. So I, at one point when I was, Trying to figure out how I could continue to survive on Campbell's soup every day, <laughs> I found an ad in the newspaper for a volunteer. They were looking for volunteers at the local food bank, so I thought, okay, this is what I need to do because uh, not only will it take my mind off of me, but you know, I can learn about it because I may end up having to
1: <laughs> right.
2: their services. So I walked in there looking thinking because I keep in mind I'm still working three jobs and I thought well maybe I can volunteer for an hour or two on the weekend to do their office work or something
1: mm-hmm.
2: and I walked out of there the chairman of the county food drive I had never participated oh my in goodness a, yeah I had never participated in a food drive let alone run one <laughs> I had no clue what I was going to do but the problem was the food bank was near bankrupt they had Hardly any food. The money was not there. Nobody was supporting them. Their their board of directors was almost non-existent. And it was either they had to have a successful food drive or they were going to fold. And I thought, oh my God, think of all the people that would be affected. Right. So I decided. I figured, you know, if they were, if it's between me and no food drive, I oh, at, at least I could do something. So I went to my boss at the hotel where I worked and I explained it to him and he was big uh on volunteering and community support so he not only gave me permission to use To do the work on company time and to use hotel staff, he supported me by um, letting me use our advertising company to do things like create flyers and Mm. that sort of thing. And he went to the hotel association and rallied support for them. (laughs) So then he gave me time and I – In the next couple of months over that, now just keep in mind, I'm going through treatment for my eye disease at this time and flying back and forth to Honolulu. And I had never done any public speaking, but I had to do, I did radio interviews. I talked to the, the local service clubs. I talked to... Uh, I did presentations for the hotel association for each one of the hotels, organized um, challenges between the resorts, did the big food drive. My comfort zone was non-existent at that point. Really? (laughs) And it it took my mind 100% off of my problem Mm -hmm. and made me feel like I was doing something positive. And you were. Yeah. So that's always been a big thing for me. It's like, you know... Take my mind off of me and do what I can help. It's the compassion thing. I want to help other people. So that's probably one of your coping mechanisms, too. It absolutely is. I mean, even in the doctor's office, when I had to go over there all the time, there were so many people sitting around in the office over there with awful sad looks on their faces because, you know, they were there for some pretty serious reasons. Right, right. I, <laughs> I made it my mission in life to make them laugh. Yes. And to make my my doctor laugh because my doctor never even cracked a smile let alone <laughs> the laugh. And I finally got I kept telling him the stupidest jokes and he'd look at me like I was completely insane. I brought chocolate chip cookies to the office when I went in over there for visits. And again, you know, and like you said, that's my coping mechanism is to try to lift other people. And it works. Yeah, it did. I finally got him to laugh at the end, my last meeting.
1: <laughs> that's amazing.
2: Were you surprised? <laughs> I was relieved and I, okay. and I I asked him I said, "Now did you do that just to keep me from bothering you again with this because I would have I th- I threatened to keep I threatened to start sending him notes <laughs> with with
1: jokes." <laughs> and he said, "No, honestly, he didn't." So, oh, that's good. Now many people wait. Uh, Until they're in a crisis. Yes. Or they put their resilience to a test, right? That's absolutely true. So what is, and you mentioned in your bio that there are common misconceptions about resilience. What are some of those?
2: Well, um, the first one is probably that you're, uh, the one that's the most common is you're either born with it or you're not. Um, And that's absolutely not true. We're all born with some level of resilience. It's what makes a difference is what you do with it. Um, people choose, they have the ability to choose to develop their emotional resilience. And the American Psychology Association um, has confirmed this. I mean, endless studies have confirmed this, that anybody can build resilience. It just depends on how much effort you're willing to put into it. Um, the other thing is that... And this one comes up periodically when I when I'm writing my articles is that attempting to become more resilient in life is like or attempting to become more resilient is like spending your life preparing for a crisis that may never happen. Mm. Um, that's very common, and and I think that a part of that comes from the way that resilience is usually portrayed. Um, If you look at the common definitions, it's described as one's ability to quickly recover or bounce back as a common term from a crisis situation. But but if you think about it, every single day, uh, we're faced with challenges that require a positive outlook, stamina, and balanced emotions. I mean, there's unrealistic deadlines and striving to achieve gold, health issues, divorce, um, all of that, even happy occasions like getting married mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and having children, there's stressors associated with that and how you respond can really make or break the experience, which is why I, my focus or my definition, if you will, is I focus on bouncing forward rather than backward. I look at How can we find the opportunities for growth in not just the good experiences, but all the experiences in a way that positively affects the quality of your life on a day-to-day basis? I like that, bouncing forward. Yeah, I I really believe that, you know, because, I mean, really think about it. Why on earth would you go through all the work of coming through a problem, situation, whatever it is, and want to bounce back to where you were before you learned all the things you you can't possibly for one thing because every
1: new experience changes us in some way. well basically that's having foresight you know they say hindsight is twenty twenty and you're encouraging people to uh, look at force or to have what am I trying to say give me my words here um, well to think well to be forward thinking and to be
2: positive and proactive about their lives. Well done. We all, well put. We we all have the ability to become intentional. We don't we we have to admit we don't have the control over everything that happens to us. I mean human beings want control, but there are things mm. we have no control over. What we always have control over is our choices and how we respond to those things.
1: Excellent. Absolutely. And what you said earlier is that very often people have to learn that, right? They have to learn yeah. how to respond and react. And very often, because of issues in their childhood, they have not had the tools to do that, to learn that. And this is where you come in, I'm assuming.
2: Yes, and and, and it's true that, you know... There aren't that many people who have perfect childhoods, and that's that's just life. Um, I I learned that, and I, there's so many experiences early on have kind of combined to form my perception of resilience, and I think that's normal. Um, but at at one point, when um, when I was helping my husband go through rehab or supporting his journey, his counselor learned about my own background and he suggested I go to um, to some of the group meetings with him, you know, as an adult child of alcoholics. And I thought, okay, well, I'll give it a try. And I sat there. I only went to one meeting and I thought, this is not for me Mm. because I was it made me feel really sad because there was uh, in that group, there were about 20 people and They were all adults, many of them much older than I, and they were sitting around talking and and crying in some cases about their childhood and about Mm. how unfair and really miserable their Mm. childhood was. And I thought, to me, this is my belief, okay, I didn't have control over what happened to me in in my childhood, but I'm an adult, and I do have control control over how I choose to grow and live my life now and I'm not going to spend it focused on what happened to me 20 years ago. And it comes down to attitude. Yeah, it really does. It really does. It's a mindset. I always tell people that resilient
1: living is a mindset. It's choosing to be proactive about your life. Uh, You had mentioned that you did a lot of research. Yeah. Now, what kind of research?
2: Well, initially, um, what kind of sent me on this journey was, of course, the, the anger management stuff. But when I first started researching resilience, there there really wasn't that much out there that wasn't just focused on clinical studies, uh, recovering from severe tr- crisis, and especially there's a lot of, there was a lot out there about traumatic um, experiences for children. Um, as a matter of fact, the, the foundation – for most of the resilience that studies came from a study in Kauai right here in Hawaii of children 50 children they followed from an early childhood childhood where they were affected by major trauma alcoholism and drug abuse Mm -hmm. and uh, physical abuse and all that through young adulthood to see how they how they managed to survive through all that so that was the first part of it and that kind of kind of um, spurred my thinking that, well, you know, this is fine, but how does the average, a lot of it has a lot of scientific jargon and, and things that I had to look up to, to try to understand. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to get over that. I, I like to find a way to, for every person to be able to understand it. So I kept reading and trying to find those resources that would tell me in everyday language, what resilience was? How could I use it on an everyday basis instead of just holding it to wait for a crisis? Can you develop it? Can anybody develop it? And and what exactly is it? That's probably – I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges for most people is trying to get a handle on exactly what resilience is because it's not like it's um, – it's not like it comes with a set of instructions like how to ride a bicycle <laughs> or something like that, you know. It's it's really a capacity. It's a mindset
1: and you develop behaviors that increase your capacity for resilience. Do you think that that happens more often when you've been through trauma? Does it make it easier or what are you suggesting?
2: I'm I'm saying that, well, anybody can do it. You don't have to have gone through it. Uh, But I I'm working with a group of women now, right now, as a matter of fact. And while only there are only a couple who have actually gone through crisis situation, they all have one thing in common. And that is that they aren't necessarily happy with the direction their lives have Mm, taken.
1: they
2: they feel like there needs to be there should be something more.
1: And they're trying (coughs) to figure out what that is. So how does your training help them in that regard? Um, Well,
2: I focus, it can be, you know, the the typical behaviors that help to build resilience are things like finding meaning and purpose in life, um, seeing opportunities and change in life transition, uh, becoming a confident decision maker, being realistically optimistic, um, being self-aware, Uh, strategically developing a support system, and there are some others. And if you look at that combined list, it can immediately throw you an overwhelm. Um, Like, oh, yeah, right, I'm going to completely redo my life and try to make everything perfect. And and that's why I focus on three main areas with my coaching and with my writing. Developing self-awareness, because that's the foundation for everything, Uh, Whatever you're trying to grow in your life or overcome or achieve, you have to have self-awareness. The next thing is taking responsibility
1: for your life and choices, which is really hard for some people. Mm. (laughs) Uh, Isn't that more true with alcoholics who always want to blame somebody?
2: Uh, no, it's true no? with everybody. Is that right? It's, okay, it's absolutely true with everybody. Um, look at the people who are affected by their past um, okay. and, and limiting beliefs. Uh, you have to take responsibility for the choices you've made, for the mistakes you've made, for the failures you've made. Look at people who are um, have a repetitive. Behavior of getting married over and over mm. and to the same person, basically. Yes, yes. Not
1: um, often. You're right. At,
2: at some point, you have to take responsibility for um, you're the one creating these situations, and that's sure. very difficult to do, uh, but it's critical. To be able to, you have to build a foundation and that's what I believe strongly. It's all about building a strong foundation to grow from. And the third, which is arguably the most important of the three legs, is emotional mastery because our emotions affect everything we do in life. And so you, you... You can have logically all the right things going on, you know in your mind these are the things you should do, but your emotions, if they're not, if you don't have a way of managing them, they can completely throw you off and and take over. So I really focus on those three things, building self-awareness, taking responsibility for your life and choice, and learning to manage your emotions.
1: Learning to manage your emotions, yeah, that's a heavy one <laughs>
2: it is it really is, but the first two parts of that
1: are what make the third possible now that's that's very that's a good point, yes, I appreciate it. I wrote this down, and um that is an excellent point, looking at it now that when you have developed your self awareness, when mm-hmm. you have taken responsibility for your choices. It is easier to master your emotions.
2: Yeah, much easier. And and again, um, you know, coming back to the everyday example, uh, I, w- I was just working earlier on an article that um, that I'm writing for my blog, and I use the example of somebody. Um, <clears throat> who is who has got a job interview coming up and this is something everybody can relate to mm-hmm. and this is a this is a job for this person who it's, it represents their dream job and this is their third interview and they're really excited but all of a sudden they're starting to have little doubts mm-hmm. there there's the three people running for that job and this person is starting to think okay wh- well, I wonder why they picked me. I mean, what are, do the other per- per- people have as much experience or do they have more experience? And they start running through every mistake they've ever made and it kind of snowballs because that's what emotions do to you. They snowball. Mm. And then then you're thinking, how can I possibly go into this interview as calm and balanced as I need to be when I'm just this emotional wreck? And so <laughs> – Learning the skills to switch your emotions to something to regain your center is a critical skill that you can, that you can, that anybody can learn and can help you in almost everything that you do in life.
1: Now explain the difference between your book, which I'm assuming is a self-help book. Yes. And your website training courses.
2: Well, the website training courses goes into greater detail uh, and actually I have I include a high level of personal contact with my courses. Um, for instance, uh, I started out, the first course I did was with uh, making self-care a part of your, your life and this is because I work so much with women and we tend to put ourselves last. We take care of everybody else mm. before we take care of ourselves. So I started with a self care course, a thirty day challenge is what I called it, and I started a Facebook group. It's a private group just for the people who are taking the course. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And so in in addition to a workbook and getting daily emails from me with work assignments and motivational messages, they participate in the self help in the Facebook group. So they can share with each other and ask questions and you know, just kind of, and it's a safe environment because it's only the people taking the course. So, uh, what's happened as a result of that is every one of them has already signed up for the next course I'm mm, doing. Excellent. On resilience so I've actually just changed the name of the Facebook group from the self-care challenge to pathways to resilient living because we're going to focus on uh, on the broader picture but that's that's what I do I because I can't as much as I love writing um, for me it's all about that connection which is one of the reasons I used to you know I used for a while I was a uh, small business and life coach as you mentioned and I liked when I was doing my, my classes and my training, I liked doing it in person so I could connect with people in my audience. Um, as a matter of fact, even when I was doing the food bank thing, I used to make people, the local radio stations insane because I never wanted to do telephone interviews. I wanted to do them in person because I liked interacting with the, uh, with the DJ and they didn't want to do that at first, so I started bribing them and I took my famous homemade chocolate chip cookies every, <laughs> every time with me and I became, as a result of that, I became known on the island as the cookie lady. <laughs> Good thing it wasn't the cookie lady, right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but it was the open that made the open door to every interview I ever wanted on on the radio was because I always brought my chocolate chip. Chocolate chip oh, cookie. that's funny. Yeah. The
1: I'll, I'll think of you now as the cookie lady. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so to summarize. Yes. Why would someone need your course? Well, I think for one thing, it I make
2: it. I take this broad subject of resilience and I break it down into manageable steps so that you can learn how to apply it to your life on a day to day basis. Okay. Um, Because the bottom line is we gain strength and confidence over how we choose to overcome life challenges, no matter how big or small. It it really is the key to everything that makes you happy and everything that makes you unhappy. Uh, And if you look at that way, uh, as you mentioned earlier, it's an attitude. It's a mindset, the way you look at life. Um, I talk about taking charge of your life. It's all the same euphemisms. Um, It's really an empowering thought you know I mean I believe strongly that we we have the power to create our own life experience it's just accepting that power and
1: the responsibility that is the key you certainly have enlightened us and I think more importantly you have challenged us and so for myself included I encourage us to take a look at not only your book, of course, but also your courses. And to learn the skills that we may need now or we may need in the future. I think that's an excellent idea. And I've always been told personally that I am a woman of who has, you know, has the corner on resilience. But even, <laughs> even people who have been through a lot and who have bounced forward. I'm going to stop using bounce back now. Good, good. You could still learn something. See, I just learned something. (laughs) Absolutely. And so there's always room for growth. There's always room for learning. And I think it's for everybody. And I really appreciate everything that you shared. It was very clear and concise. And like I said, intriguing and definitely challenging.
2: Thank you so much for this opportunity. It's been a pleasure meeting you. And, and again,
1: I just, I'm just i so happy to have this opportunity to share with your audience. Absolutely. And it won't stop here. We will have everything up and running on the website for you with all your contact information and your books and your courses. And we look forward to hearing more from you. Thank you, Carol. Thank you, Marquita. Okay. Bye.